the nonprofit Social Media Summit is back and better than ever. This year, the summit is all virtual and coming directly to your screens on November 2nd and 3rd. Speakers include Amy Sample Ward, Afua Bruce, Lisa Mae Brunson, and of course, yours truly, and many more. We're covering everything from TikTok to time management, Facebook ads to influencer marketing. Get your free ticket at nonprofitsocialmediasummit.com, and I'll see you there. Hello, and welcome to Nonprofit Nation. I'm your host, Julia Campbell, and I'm going to sit down with nonprofit industry experts, fundraisers, marketers, and everyone in between to get real and discuss what it takes to build that movement that you've been dreaming of. I created the Nonprofit Nation podcast to share practical wisdom and strategies to help you confidently find your voice, definitively grow your audience, and effectively build your movement. If you're a nonprofit newbie or an experienced professional who's looking to get more visibility, reach more people, and create even more impact, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. Welcome back to Nonprofit Nation. This is your host, Julia Campbell. Thrilled to be here with you today. Thanks so much for listening and tuning in. And today, I know that I always say that we have a special guest, but we actually have one of my really, really good personal friends, not just professional colleagues, Tim Sarantonio. He's here today to talk to us about what's next for small shop professional development virtual conference experiences, and what is really going wrong with some of these in-person conference experiences that we've been having, and where do we go from here? Also, a special giveaway, so make sure you listen till the end, and we're going to talk about some of the projects that we've been working on together. So Tim is an internationally renowned speaker on generosity, technology, and the trends in the social good sector. And I have to say, you have to follow Tim on LinkedIn for some really interesting insights and questions and just some really great context on some of the things that are going on in the sector. After helping various causes raise over $3 million, he then moved into providing support for thousands of nonprofits through his work at Neon One. And that is how we met. He's spoken at AFP, the International Conference Icon, the Nonprofit Technology Conference, TEDx, and holds a certificate in philanthropic psychology from the Institute for Sustainable Philanthropy. He lives in Niskayuna, and I've had the honor of being not only a guest at his house, but his incredible house in Adirondack, New York, his wonderful, it's not a cabin, it's like an absolutely gorgeous like ranch, it's beautiful, that he enjoys with his lovely wife, three beautiful and really sweet daughters, and two perfectly fine Perfectly fine. (laughs) I absolutely love that. Tim, this is so, so overdue to have you on my podcast. And I know you're offended. So I apologize. I'm not offended. You know, good things come to those who wait. I'm like, (laughs) absolutely. We should have recorded this in the Adirondacks, but that would have, that's, that's for next year. That's That's for for next year. So tell me how you got into nonprofit work. Like a lot of people in the sector, I think we all have our story on how we got onto the island of misfit toys that is fundraising and marketing for nonprofits. And so I originally wanted to be a labor historian. And I went to school 
for labor history. And so I went to SUNY Plattsburgh, got my master's in history, a minor in East Asian studies, actually. That's a random one. I don't think I talk about that one. I don't I didn't know that. So for me it was like, well, I wanna teach I wanna be a professor and I wanna focus on history. And so that means that I need to have a highly defined expertise and then I need to go into debt around that expertise. So I applied to three programs in my my senior year of college at Plattsburgh, which was around 2004. I applied to uh, Syracuse University for higher education management, actually. So my sliding doors moment could have been, yes, we're, we are referencing the 90s film Sliding Doors, folks, already in it's a good movie. And so my sliding doors moment could have been that I went to Syracuse and I would have been like working in HR at like, you know, Middlebury College or something like that. And then I got into Teachers College, Columbia University in New York City. And I also got into the National University of Ireland in Galway. And the Syracuse program is two years. The Irish program and the Columbia program were one year. I always wanted to get in Columbia. I did too. Cause, and part of it's because my mom said, why don't we aim a little bit more realistically in what you're applying to? And I said, and I said, F you, mom. And so like all good decisions, they were done to spite a parent. And so I went into massive debt getting these two master's degrees. And promptly upon, I got it in Ireland. So we don't need to talk about the queen by the way, then moved back from Ireland after getting the master's degree in culture and colonialism. It was post-colonial theory. And then I moved to New York City, got another degree in history and education. Julie, I thought it was history, like how to teach history. It wasn't. I misread the program. It was about the history of education, not end of. That sounds like a really big snafu. It was. <laughs> it was. It was a year I was able to kind of jerry rig it, so I, I got what I needed out of it. But like, it was. Long story short, I moved to Chicago with the intention of applying to PhD programs in the Midwest, and got rejected from all of them. And it's very expensive to apply, and there was only a handful of people that I'd get in. So my dad flew to Chicago because I was working in coffee shops because I had degrees in post-colonial theory and the incorrect education like focus. So I got I didn't have a good job. I was like per se. I wasn't even at like great coffee shops. It was just like <laughs> I'm sure damn. there's really great ones in Chicago. You couldn't even work they at are, like- they are, but I wasn't working at anything like I had some good experiences. Like I got to serve the people from Cirque du Soleil. That's amazing. And I saw Cirque du Soleil when I was in Montreal. Well Phenomenal. they were staying in Chicago in the hotel like place that I did a coffee shop. So I like learned a lot of stuff about experiences and theatrics and stuff like that just by like being able to interact with the performers there. But my dad flew to Chicago in around 2008 it was like, get a job. Like you got to get a job. I'm not, we're not paying for your crap anymore. So I applied for a grant writing job at a day labor center and it was 2008. So the economy crashed all the grant people were like we're not giving away grants so i had to pivot to individual fundraising and that's where my nonprofit career started a series of unfortunate events 
Exactly. I started when I got home from the Peace Corps, I wanted to work at the African Presidential Center at Boston University and I was willing to really do anything to work there. And they needed a they needed a grant writer and like a PR person. So I think I did like grants and PR and events. So sort of like a mishmash. And this kind of touches on the topic that we'll be touching on. And the reason I kind of labor through that experience is because when I started grant writing and then one, I actually even have, oh yeah, I have the book right in front of me. Now we're not doing the video stuff today, folks. So I'm going to describe the book. It's Grant Writing for Dummies. It's a well-worn copy that it was the very first nonprofit book that I ever bought. Who wrote that? Who wrote that by, by chance? Uh, Bev Browning. Bev Browning. That's a good point. should look that up. And the thing is, is that unlike, like my wife's an engineer. And so her career path has been generally pretty straightforward in terms of like, she might work for different companies, different specializations, but I am going to school for the following items and I need to achieve these certificates and I need these continuing education credits. And this is how I'm allowed to practice. And like, she gets things every so often from Texas or California or Massachusetts, even though she's based in New York, that says, I'm allowed to do work in this state because I have the following things. Fundraisers, especially the 97% of nonprofits that are under $5 million, there's CFRE, there's CNP. But like you can get into fundraising and have a completely wackadoodle path. And then you have to kind of learn on the job. And so it's not like becoming a plumber or an engineer or all these other kind of trade things or other things where the traditional path is very laid out. It's very choose your own adventure. And so that's why education is so important, but at the same is, is, is the wild rest right now. So yeah, I mean, we'll organically get there, Julia, but like that's, that's kind of always weighed on me of like, I remember trying to figure out how to set up websites and online donations. And I downloaded a 300 page PDF of how to set up a CRM that was free. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I have a degree in post-colonial theory. What the hell is going on? I did Benavon. Do you remember Benavon? Oh, yeah, Benavon, yeah. I don't think it was called Benavon when I did it. I think it was called the Institute of Fundraising. I don't remember. But I was looking up resources for fundraisers because people were throwing around terms like major gifts, planned giving, legacy giving, sustainer giving. And I had no idea what those terms meant or were. And when I got my first director development job, I was, of course, you know, responsible for everything from the annual fund to major gifts, to grants, to everything. So I had to really figure out on my own, like how to do it. So I completely, I completely understand. And I think that leads us into the first topic, you know, why is investing in professional development important for small shop, nonprofit fundraisers and marketers in particular? Well, one, it's important so you can be good at your job and feel supported in your job. And any good leadership at an organization is going to prioritize some sort of professional development. That's what my my job, I eventually settled at a, a Catholic school in the north side of Chicago, and they invested in in database training. I took every single course that BlackBot had to offer on Razor's Edge. 
and database management. And, and I actually was helping pilot the original Blackboard Institute courses that they've evolved over time because they didn't have that. They had you physically go in and somebody teaches you in a classroom and then you can, you know, and I would be the nerd that would like corner the prof- like the instructor who's like on the road and flying to different cities. Like this is in 2011, right? So about 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago. And the model that they had then was like, there's these classrooms that you can rent and you can go in and they have monitors and and they would set you up with a dummy database and you can kind of go through and fail in an immersive way. And then they'd reset the thing. And then, you know, you can muck around with Robert Hernandez's record and not worry about messing up your own donor cultivation stuff because it was a play environment. And so that was a good model, but obviously there's limitations in scale there. And I accelerated my ability to be an effective fundraiser because I had that core training. And it was because my job prioritized it, but they also did other things like sending me to Case NACE conferences and buying access to how to structure the annual fund. Like I remember Jim Greenfield's book. Now I have a physical copy of the book, but we had a, I think a PDF version or something that you had to buy. And I remember just like falling in love with it. And so not every organization that I worked for, it was only the one that was in that 3% range that prioritized that. And there's so much wasted time because when I first joined the nonprofit sector, I thought it was all events. Oh, you do events to raise money. Yeah. As a last resort, if you want to properly scale things, it should be a community building thing, not your primary revenue driver. Because you get into a lot of trouble because of how unweirdly and un- unpredictable those types of things can be, especially now. I had um, Claire Axelrad on the podcast, and she hates events. <laughs> and she just, we talked about, and actually, when I had her on, she was one of my first guests, so it was pretty early on in the in the pandemic, but or the pandemic was still kind of really raging, 2021. But she did, she said that, and she said there's just so many other things that nonprofits can focus on rather than the $200 or even $50 plate gala, especially small nonprofits. So what have you seen change since the pandemic? I mean, clearly things have been completely upended, but I think in some good ways, maybe in some bad ways. So what are some changes you've seen in virtual education or just in the conference space in general? Well, so I remember back in March, 2020, I flew into Columbus, Ohio to attend the summer symposium of the Giving Institute, which is who puts out the Giving USA report. And so there's a lot of consulting firms and technology companies that gather and when I was waiting for my flight at my then favorite restaurant in, you know, Latham, New York, right by the airport, I got the news that it was declared a pandemic by the WHO. And I was like, okay. So then I flew into Ohio and I was hearing news about that. And so the only thing that people could talk about was that. Well, I remember you were, you were the last, one of the last people I saw in person because we were at the peer to peer forum Right before that. February 2020 in Austin. And that was the last conference I went to 
So you went to you you managed to squeak in one more after that. Uh, right more one more after well barely because so one we were all holding our breath on when AFP icon and NTC would get. I remember that distinctly. And so what happened was that was one of the first things that we zeroed in on was this is serious if these conferences get canceled. And then those conferences got canceled. I flew back the next day. I immediately called my CEO at the time and said, I got to get the hell out of here. And he's like, you know, do whatever you got to do. So I went back and then we locked down. And, you know, what happened is that the digital pivot, as Taylor Shanklin was terming it at the time, started to occur. And so a few things happened. Number one, we were already on our end at Neon, already thinking about virtual experiences. Everybody thought like, wow, Neon's on their game. It's like, no, I didn't have any money. And so like, I didn't have a budget. And so I didn't have a budget to do one of the conferences that we wanted to do, which historically had been focused on giving day organizations where they would gather them in like Colorado. And it was like 70 people. And it's like, I don't know if we're going to be able to do this. Let me see what we might be able to do. And then the pandemic happened. I'm like, we're just going virtual. So that was like in April and May. So it was pretty quick that we were able to roll that out. But like in retrospect, it was was less than stellar. It was really one long Zoom. I had to use GoToWebinar. And I just kept it on the entire time and, and begged my wife to keep the children out of the room. Oh, I remember those early days of Zoom calls <laughs> with the children running in and my children running in. And it was like, we all looked like we had one hour of sleep. Because we did. And so what happened is that we started, I think, as a sector, and, and and across the board, this wasn't a nonprofit thing, but I think that people, there was like, anytime that we put out something decent, and you and I did content, and I did content with, with you know, people like Taylor Shanklin and Mark Mark Becker from Cathexis and, and things like that, where every time we put out content, we'd be hitting numbers that, for registration that we hadn't seen before. So one of the most popular things that we ever did, especially at the time, was when you, me, and Kat Murphy did the webinar for Giving Tuesday. But that was just a webinar, and it was pre-COVID, if I remember correctly. So that was like 1,200 people that registered for that. It was awesome. We turned it into a fun thing. You had to make it an experience, right? Like, like we jazzed it up. We, we played around with the format. And so we were kind of on the forefront you and me and giving Tuesday at that type of stuff. But what we really kind of started to understand was that people are looking more from, they don't want to be lectured. Yes, exactly. They want something interactive or they want something where they can, they just want something different. The concern that, that I start seeing, and this is where earlier, and I know you helped promote this resource too, is the, the report on individual giving that we did earlier this year. I'll put it in the show notes. Well, thank you. Thank you. And donors understanding the the future of individual giving was developed because I started seeing a lot of content, especially from digital firms, that was not vetted. And this is a big, important distinction of understanding education now because Julia knows this, but if you're listening to me for the first time, I'm with a vendor and I'm like the anti-vendor guy. <laughs> That's true. Because I will point out 
sometimes loudly things that I think are wrong that we all do that I don't like. Good. That's why I say follow you on um, Twitter and LinkedIn. Twitter, I subtweet probably a little bit more than people are, are you know, you, you, you know, you've been like, I just put up gifts these days. <laughs> the thing is, is that there's a distinction that we need to make between there's proper education and the good firms out there, be it vendors or consultants or educational institutions, understand the difference between educational content put out to properly educate and marketing shit. Mm-hmm. Branded content. So I'm in marketing. I started in sales, and I've always been someone who said, even when I got to my company 11 years ago this November, I said, I don't like how we do demonstrations. I want to change them, and I'm going to use my overpriced Columbia degree to redesign the educational experience because, God forbid, I'm going to get something out of this thing. And so even when we designed our demonstration of the product, I used curriculum design principles to do it, where it wasn't, I'm going to sell you this crap. It's like, let's design it. So I'm going to educate you on what this could mean for you. And that's why I think I was really good at sales, because I said, if it's not for you, then it's not for you. Like, I'm going to tell you what this does. I think it's a good fit for you based off of our conversation. Let's go. And so when you're designing education, you have to understand your audience really, really well. And the big thing that I'm worried about in today's environment is what I'm calling 3% content. And 3% content is designed for the 3% of nonprofits that have $5 million or more in revenue. Oh, I know people are like snapping their fingers. My audience is definitely the smaller nonprofit. And here's how to spot 3% content if it's framed as every nonprofit should use this. Every nonprofit should do this. Every donor should do this because that's not real. That's what I learned in the report is that there's over a million nonprofits. There's millions upon millions of donors. And our understanding of both is significantly lacking in my opinion. And so 3% content is when shiny object syndrome really kicks into gear and these digital Pied Pipers come in and say, don't worry, I have the silver bullet thing. This is going to solve your problems. And so I started getting concerned because the blurring of lines during the pandemic between proper education by vendors, people like Bloomerang, people like Blackbot in many cases, and Classy, started getting blurred where if you don't have somebody in brand that can give proper oversight to, I am not going to allow something that is not vetted to get out there, then that's what happens where it's like case studies and small examples. Like I saw some data, a good example. I'm not going to name the firm, obviously, but uh, but where it was like using our software leads to like 77% year-over-year growth. And I'm like, yeah, if you start from zero, then of course you're going to see year-over-year growth, right? Like you can't say that digital is going to work for every nonprofit, just like you should say, you shouldn't say that only direct mail is going to work for nonprofits. It's very contextual and people don't like hearing that. And so when you start to do the lies, damn lies statistics 
side of things and framing it as education, it can really be dangerous, in my opinion, to the 97%, because the 3% can can experiment with shiny objects and not get fired. But the 97%, especially the 92% that are the, the smaller revenue organizations, and this data is directly drawn from, because I am a data guy and I cite my sources, this is National Council of Nonprofits, Nonprofit Impact Matters, and it's all it is is looking at 990 data. So when I say 3%, 97%, 92%, that is hard fact from the IRS and National Council of Nonprofits, so we know. And so if you're small and you start experimenting with the shiniest digital toy that you saw a case study that worked for Charity Water or whoever, you don't have that leeway to experiment sometimes. And so there's a few things that are at play, and then I'll get off my soapbox. One, vendors need to be extraordinarily careful with this understanding. And number two, nonprofits also should have the freedom to experiment, but in the context of scale and sustainability, right? Like, it's not the whole apple cart. It's like, we're going to try this subset of our segment and see if it works. Like, we'll try texting on this this group. And my my board is okay seeing low return on investment. That's okay. Any sized organization can do that type of experimentation and should be. It's that a lot of the digital Pied Pipers are framing it as like, this is the thing that you should be focusing your energy on to. And that's where I get concerned. I love the digital Pied Piper. Um, <laughs> I love that analogy. So do you think that people are webinared out? I get that question a lot. Like, are people sick of webinars? Are they sick of learning online? Do they just want to get back in person? I think they're bad webinar out. Oh, I think there's terrible webinars out there. I think there's a lot of terrible webinars. And, and here's some things that you can you can kind of flag, especially is, are they stating clearly the learning outcomes? Are the learning outcomes tied to a product or a service? And so, are you interested in that product or service? If you are, great. It might be a practical case study. If you're not, then just be prepared that there might be a Trojan horse pitch in there. You know, 20 minutes in, then suddenly it says, okay, now we're going to shift to the demo. And that's fine. Demoing products is not a bad thing. Understanding what things do is not a bad thing. It's wasting people's time because they thought that they were going to learn about I don't know. Let's just use an example. I'll I'll say uh, auction platforms, something like that, right? Like I'm going to understand the future of hybrid auctions, and then suddenly it's like, and the future is our crap that yeah. we're going to show you. And it's <laughs> like, okay, fine, right? So for me, I don't think that people, our numbers are not the same that they were in terms of registrations in the beginning of the pandemic. But one, nobody's are. And two, I think that people are bad webinared out, but they aren't necessarily shying away from digital content by any means. I think that a lot of people, the accessibility of digital has allowed more people to learn quicker. I think the future is, I'll just say this and we can get into this because we Yeah, tell me about the future. Well, and I don't want to go then to the we, I want to talk about the projects that you're working on. Well, absolutely, and I want to keep an eye on the time for people so we don't want to go too far over, but I'll just say this. If we're ready to return to in-person, then 
I better see some better in-person experiences because there's a lot of things from my perspective that we've gone back into. Why are we still doing it this way? And there's and, and there's the vendor side that I don't need to get into, and then there's the education side. And the education side is I think there's definitely a hybrid model that we can start to practice, in my opinion. And the folks at Fundraising Everywhere, for instance, have known this for a while. They do this very well, Simon and Nikki, who who are on the forefront of virtual education for small organizations. I always point to them as something that is like they're doing it right. And I've drawn a lot of inspiration from them. But I'm going to the NEO Summit, for instance, being put on by Next After. And I'm very excited about that experience. But I also know that the vast majority of nonprofits out there are not going to be able to enjoy that. And so how can you create learning and hands-on immersive experiences that could scratch the itch of in-person if you could do it affordably? which a lot of times is not going to be the case for small organizations who cannot fly people halfway across the country for these things. And then can you make it that the virtual experience, if you are going virtual, isn't bad, is actually immersive. And the key is do not try to recreate in person. Accept it on its own terms and make it better. I love it. And you and I both participated in future of fundraising, the Community Boost Nonprofit Marketing Summit. They do a good job. They do a very good job. what um, the feedback I got from people that went to my session, they liked the interaction and the virtual networking, and they liked the smaller and more intimate like lounges where they could talk to speakers and they could talk to each other. Yes. And I think that's what you're talking about when you're saying you don't just try to preach to people or lecture the whole time, try to find the places within the event where there can be networking and where there can be some kind of interaction. Um, And I know you do that really well. So do you want to, do you want to talk about the upcoming events? I'm obsessed with it. So, so I think that there's a few different ways to do education in our space. And I think one, if you look at what Blackboard did with BBCon, they did shift it virtually. So they're, they're getting it. It'll be interesting to see. For me, I think that the big draw for small organizations is not celebrities, right? Like I see a lot of things around BBCon, for instance, about like, cool, like I'll register to hear the dude from Shang-Chi, the Marvel movie, talk. I don't know how that's going to help me be a better fundraiser, but like, cool, like, or Laura Dern or all this type of stuff where we have a partnership for Visa for Generosity Exchange, which I am now shifting properly folks into talking about. And that is the Neon One conference virtually that we launched in 2020 and it's continued to evolve. And for me, when given the opportunity for celebrities and stuff like that, because we have a tight top line partnership with Visa, I'll take it. But behind the scenes, folks, those things logistically are a lot and they could distract from the core content. So we say, if this fits, that's great. But the really big thing that we're going to focus on is giving small shop nonprofits the empowerment to head into end of the year and beyond to create amazing generosity experiences. That's our why. That's our why at Neon One. And for us, one of the ways that we want to deliver on that is through generosity exchange. So this year, the changes that I've made in the platform, because I've used a few different platforms. And so for us, finding the right platform is important. 
because you can't just do all this in Zoom. You can have some things in Zoom, but like, for instance, Zoom and breakout rooms, sometimes it's hard to understand what's happening in the rest of the event. So for us, the experience of connection and the experience of learning in a hands-on way, we're going to do this in four different ways. Five, if we, we count the social elements. So for Generosity Exchange, which is October 19th and 20th, we're going to offer a main stage that is more thought leadership, the traditional lecture style. I'm being introduced to a thought-provoking topic. So something like Mallory Erickson talking about the chicken or the egg donor and fundraiser relationships. You do not need to use Neon One products to do that. I don't care. Or we do a keynote conversation. I don't like keynote like I'm going to talk at you. I actually said, let's get two leaders in the space, Denise Barada, who works for Cook County's Equity Initiative. She is going to interview Edgar Villanueva, who wrote Decolonizing Wealth. I love to actually bring in, because we focus on individual giving, I love bringing in perspectives that touch on the foundation world or upending the the traditional ways that you approach things and getting a different perspective. So Edgar's really great at that. But then our middle stage is all interviews. It's the exchange stage. And so I interviewed Palma School in California about how they launched a Giving Tuesday campaign for the first time, raised $70,000. How did they do it? I want to hear that story. <laughs> it's a great story. And it's, and it's a grind. It's a, it's a lot of work. I interviewed Zaman International, their chief knowledge officer, how she uses things like Excel and Google Data Studio to augment her usage of our CRM, right? Basically, how nonprofit did a thing. So you get to say, okay, so this is where case studies are important because it's like, do I see myself in this person's role or mission or size? If so, this is for me. And then finally, the hands-on side, we're doing two things. One is a workshop structure where people can see each other, interact with each other, up to 50 people in the room at the same time. But we have a dedicated facilitator on a topic. And this is where our products are really focused in on. So it's like, okay, like we have a new website product coming out. Spoiler, you heard it here first. So we're actually going to give nonprofits the ability to build full websites, kind of like think, I don't want to use Squarespace or Wix. I want my own nonprofit thing alongside my CRM. How does that work? We have our product manager who's going to come in and talk about that and get And that's just so tactical. And it's not overwhelming because it's one piece of the pie. It is. What I always remember is Calvin and Hobbes' father's uh, advice, basically, specificity is funnier. And I also think specificity is also more effective in education, where if it's for everybody, it's not for anybody. So that's why I go nerdy on these sides. But then I said, okay, so what happens if somebody isn't using our products, but they want that hands-on experience? Well, okay, let's do it. So I established a coach's corner, same room format, but it's an ask the expert open Q&A. We establish a topic for a half an hour up to an hour, and somebody can come in and ask an expert. So we got Mina Das, for instance. Oh, yes. Love her. She's going to talk about data equity. 
Just come in and ask about any question relating to data equity. We have Crystal Cherry doing board members management. We have Chris Hammond doing peer-to-peer fundraising. It's not about our products. It's about the topic. But I'll tell you one thing, and this will lead into our work together. You got to network. So we have speed networking. And then over the weekend, and Julia, we can extend this out to the Nonprofit Social Media Summit. I actually enabled a video tool where people can record 30-second videos on a prompt that you line up, and it lives right within the event platform. So in the event platform, I'm saying, do a quick introduction on who you are, nonprofit. And it creates a whole wall that people can click into and find out soon. So almost like virtual video business cards a little bit. It is. It's a little virtual video business card, and you have that. So I'm going to use it for speakers beforehand because you can download the files. We can use that for social promotion. And then in the event itself, it's intros. It's got a little coffee cup in the thing, and we're going to go and do that. And we have social events. We have a band playing you know, so you can do interesting things in a virtual environment, but you have to just understand, hey, this is virtual. So you have to like do different stuff. But it also leads to the fact that I pitched you last year. Let's bring back the nonprofit social media summit. We did it in person and it was wonderful, but it was just not possible to do that again. Because, like you said, the smaller nonprofits, it's really a struggle for them to get the budget to pay for the conference, but also the hotel, the travel, the Ubers, the everything, you know, that you need to, to pay for to go to the conference. So I thought it was a huge success, but we ended up reaching, you know, over a thousand more people. <laughs> we did it virtually. So that's why we're sticking with that. But that was always my concern. And I think partnering with you and with Neon One is just the perfect partnership because you really are intentional about these experiences and you understand the small nonprofit and you're not trying to just do like the 3% content that you really want them to get something out of it and to walk away feeling empowered and, and feeling inspired and getting some tactical information. So I'm, yeah, I'm really excited. Our CEO has made it clear that every dollar that goes to us is one that needs to be stewarded very, very intentionally, that we need to hold ourselves to a higher standard because these organizations, their money is so precious in many ways that if we waste it in any way, that we're doing them a disservice. I don't care what other companies do. They can they can spend their money as they see fit. But for us, we hold ourselves to a standard around experience design means that you approach it with an abundance mindset. We're not cutting things, but this is a very lean operation that we've been able to do for both. It has to be. And you need to make it that it's very clearly worth it to people. That's why I'm excited for people to also check out the summit because you've had, and you've been able to, I would say this year, you've had, don't let me put words in your mouth, but there's a little less stress than maybe last year. Well, we were trying to figure out the format. We were trying to figure out how many sessions and it was a lot of that logistical stuff. And now this year we have that all worked out and we have a platform that we can use. And actually I have a better idea now that I did, I did it virtually once that a better idea of what people want to see. 
So yeah, we mean, we can totally plug the summit. It's going to be incredible. We have Afua Bruce and Amy Sample Ward doing the very first keynote on the tech that comes next. One of my absolute favorite books. We have Meta speaking. We have the TikTok coach. Um, she's going to come and do a series on TikTok. We have, gosh, what content repurposing, Facebook fundraising for Giving Tuesday. Sierra Selby is going to do a session on uh, internal communications for social media managers. Like how do you get everyone involved with your social media marketing plan? And if they're too involved, what do you do? And if they're not involved enough, what do you do? Which I think is a huge piece of it. I'm going to talk about time management and you're going to talk. It's going to be really wonderful. So yeah, everyone can get that information in the show notes. It is. And so what we'll do, because I know we're coming up to our time. Or we should be. Yes, we went way over it, but it's fine. <laughs> we went way over, but this is worth okay. it. Okay, we could do whatever we want. We can do whatever we want. So uh, we're going to include a special, and this is in the emails that Julia sends out too, and and stuff like that. Anything where if you register through the special URL that you need, as long as Julia provides it, that's all you need to know. And I'm going to make you one. I'm going to make you the URL that you use for Generosity Exchange. And for one lucky person, we will upgrade your general admission registration to the premium ticket. And the premium ticket will include a swag box, a special workshop, a special party, and a discount to the nonprofit social media summits own premium ticket opportunities as well because we believe in affordable education some of it is general like i believe yeah we're doing a free ticket but the premium tickets are worth it like on both sides this is where investment into professional education matters because we try to keep these things affordable but to enhance the experience right exactly because with the you know with the premium ticket you'll get the recordings and then one if not two special VIP workshops with me. So I'm trying to figure that out. And the, and both will be available in the show notes because we better damn well have that site live by the time this goes. <laughs> oh, it definitely will be by the time this goes live. I'm ready to go. You give me the sessions. I'm ready to go. So I think the easiest thing for people to do, if you're not on my email list, you just go to jcsocialmarketing.com forward slash subscribe, and then you can get on the list and then you'll get all of that information. What's the URL for generosity exchange? We'll put it in the show notes because I want to make sure that people register through the special one that we're giving you because then, uh, and you'll get that today, Julia. And so that's where, you know, you could go to the neon one website and find it. But if we do this one, then I know. Then we know, and then you'll be registered for, the amazing giveaway. I love a good swag box. <laughs> it's got a Sherpa blanket. You get a copy of Decolonizing Wealth. It's got a mug, some hot chocolate, some other goodies in there. So Amazing. Well, Tim, thank you so much. I love that our podcast episode would also like a business call. <laughs> it is. We got some People stuff People get done, to see how the sausage you. is made. And I love it. I like building in public. I mean, and if anybody, and, and, he, and I'm serious, if anybody listening here wants to Talk to me about how to plan a really good virtual experience at scale, then drop me a line, Tim at neon1.com. I'm happy to help. I don't care if you work for 
anybody, competitor or, or whatever, if we elevate the experience across the sector, then the quality helps everybody. And then it starts to show you don't have to do business that you're just mistreating people or trying to get their information to send them crappy cold calls. You can elevate it where you're educating people and driving them toward what will help them. And that's the type of business that we should be celebrating. So that's why I'm so excited to work with you because we're forging that path forward. And I have ideas on physical, but that's another episode. That's another episode. I can't wait. Thanks so much for being here, Tim. I'm so excited. I know you're super busy, but yeah, everyone, make sure you check out the show notes. If you want to get on my email list, get on there and I'll be sending out a lot more information about the giveaway, generosity exchange and the upcoming nonprofit social media summit. So thank you. um, And thanks again, Tim. Thank you. Well, hey there. I wanted to say thank you for tuning into my show and for listening all the way to the end. If you really enjoyed today's conversation, make sure to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, and you'll get new episodes downloaded as soon as they come out. I would love if you left me a rating or a review because this tells other people that my podcast is worth listening to. And then me and my guests can reach even more earbuds and create even more impact. So that's pretty much it. I'll be back soon with a brand new episode, but until then you can find me on Instagram at Julia Campbell, seven, seven, keep changing the world. You nonprofit unicorn. Thank you.